seminar, uh, Postmodernism in the Church. And um, last week we had an excellent presentation by Dr. Craig Hazen. And uh, this morning we have the blessing of being ministered to by Troy Lamberth, uh, who uh, graduated from Cal Baptist with his bachelor's in English and history. He got his master's from Chapman University in film and television, thus the postmodern connection. Uh, and he is an adjunct professor at Cal Baptist in film as art and culture, speech, and English composition. But most importantly, uh, Lamberth, Troy Lamberth is a, a believer that loves the Lord Jesus Christ. He's been an active member of Reformed Baptist Church of Riverside over here in the corner of Iowa and Blaine. And we've actually crossed paths in the past. Uh, some of our evangelism team has uh, crossed paths with Troy and their evangelism team out at the Riverside Market Night and things like that. And so we're just really excited to have Troy out. Uh, he's recently, he and his wife Melissa have recently had a baby. They've named Jackson here about four five weeks ago. There you are. Four or five weeks ago. And, um, and he's been staying up late at night uh, with his baby. And when he describes his tribulations and trials, I just get this morbid glee when he describes having to stay up in the middle of the night with his little baby. And uh, any parents that have been through that probably just think that this is a wonderful thing that you get to experience. Uh, but we're just uh, very thankful for Troy coming on over and blessing us. Why don't you guys welcome Troy Lambert? Okay, great. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. I bring greetings from the church on the corner right across the street. In some ways, I feel like a sister church because we know a lot of you, and I know some of you know us over there. Um, let's pray before we begin. Dear Father, we uh, are so grateful that you have allowed us to wake this morning and to be alive. And most importantly, for those of us who know you uh, as, and know Christ and are saved in the work that he did on the cross, Lord, we're thankful that we uh, have salvation. And Lord, not just salvation for a heaven to come, but Lord, salvation that gives us grace each day to live lives that glorify you, Lord, that uh, by your spirit we have the power to live a life that honors you and uh, brings light to this world, Lord God. And we pray even this morning as we focus on your church and the postmodern influence that has been upon it of late, we do ask that your word would be preeminent. For we know, Lord, that your word is truth and we know that your word has spoken uh, your word was revealed in flesh, and your word is even with us today as we uh, open up the Bible. And so we do ask that you would minister to our souls uh, to the glory of your name. And as your name we pray this, Jesus. Amen. Well, I have to say it was a beautiful drive here this morning. I don't know if you got a chance to see the, the mountains with the snow on it. Uh, this is always my favorite time of year when we kind of get those first couple of storms. And we're thankful this year we did get a couple of storms. Um, and just to see that snow on there, it is uh, very refreshing. Um, I don't know, I'm not a transcendentalist, but uh, I do look at nature often and say, praise the Lord. It is, it is a real blessing to see that. And it's a blessing to be here, as I said. Uh, we're going to continue in our discussion of postmodernism. I, w I had a, a, a chance to listen to what Dr. Hazen said last week, uh, and he touched on a lot of it. 
but it's a it's a squishy subject. He kind of alluded to that. If you if you're still kind of going, okay, well now what is this, and why are we talking about it? That's okay. Um, I was exposed, I think, to postmodernism when I was in college over 11, 12 years ago. Now I can't believe that. And you know, there's some exciting thoughts there because oh, what's this new concept? And especially when you're studying literature and film. Um, it's very prevalent, and sometimes it's exciting to look at, and then sometimes you go, now what exactly are we studying here? Um, <laughs> and it's, it's very interesting, and, and the connection there in the film world, I, I, I think maybe this might bring, I hope, a better understanding, at least in the secular realm of postmodernism. Some of you might be familiar with the author Clive Cussler. He's written hundreds of books, I think, or he claims to at least. And uh, one was Sahara. They made a movie about it a couple of years back. Well, it's interesting. I don't know if you followed it in the papers. Most of us don't get the LA Times, but the Times was following this particular case because Clive Cussler was being sued by Paramount Pictures um, over the flop of the movie that he had made. It's, it's interesting that Paramount Pictures came out, uh, the, I think Sahara came out, two years ago, and it lost about $100 million. Now, for you and me, that's a lot of money. Uh, in Hollywood, if they have one or two flops a year like that, they're okay. Um, but for me, that's a lot of money. And Paramount, for some reason, took interest in this and said, hey, we can't lose this money. Um, and so they sued Clive Cussler over an interesting claim that he had made. It turns out that before Cussler signed a contract, his manager had told him, you, you need to stop claiming how many books you've sold. And he's oh, no, 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 no. Because on his website, he claims that he sold a hundred, I think it's a hundred million copies of his books over the last 20 years. Um, and his manager was saying, you need to be careful with this. You don't make such a claim because we're not quite sure if you sold that many. But um, it was all over his website and he began to push it in vocal conversations, perhaps when he comes to meetings and talking to people, they're saying, it's now upwards of 125 million copies that I've sold worldwide. Well, it's interesting that after the flop happened and Cussler was very intrusive in the process of making the movie, they didn't like each other, um, that Paramount hired an auditor to go find out how many copies did he really sell. And uh, after that audit, it turned out that he had sold nearly 45 million copies. Now, that's a lot of copies. I don't want to discredit him. But 45 million compared to 125 million, there's a little bit of a gap there, I'd say. Well, um, Paramount felt the same way. And they said, we're going to sue you because we thought you were a more prominent author than you claimed to be. And because you weren't, that's partly why this movie failed let alone if you've seen it, it's not that great of a movie. Um, <laughs> but it's interesting that when Kessler actually was put on the stand in the court case, the, the, all this information was brought up by Paramount's attorney and said, what do you have to say about this discrepancy and how many copies are sold? You know, you said 125 million, it's really 45 million. And his quote was this, it just struck me. Well, it doesn't really mean anything when I say that. What? What do you mean it doesn't really mean anything? There's hard facts here. We could stack them all up right here. 125 million books would take this whole room uh, and more. Uh, and then stack 45 million, it'd be a lot smaller. We could visibly see that. But it's interesting in this postmodern 
worldview shift that has happened in, over the last few decades that someone can interestingly say, well, that doesn't really mean anything. I was just saying that. I think that also might bring to mind that uh, in our culture we find this relativism. We've had a president say, well, what's really the definition of is? You know, I, I think we all get that. I think my one-month-old son gets what is is. <laughs> um, David Bowie. Now, some of you might remember him, a rock star. Still, he's still around, but I found this interesting quote. He said, I don't necessarily know what I'm talking about in my writing. All I do is assemble points that interest me and puzzle through it. That becomes a song, and people who listen to that song must take what they can from it and see if information they've assembled fits in with anything I've assembled. Huh? <laughs> now, I have to admit, I do like a couple of David Bowie songs, but uh, I've often wondered what he was trying to say. We can be heroes? Um, does he really mean that? But it's, you know, in the world that can be expected. I mean, you might say, well, that's always been around. People have always been relative, and it's true. Because of our sinful natures, we've, since Adam and Eve said, well, did God really say that? Um, should we really not touch the fruit, or is it just not look at the fruit, or not walk around the fruit? You know, what is it there? We, we've done that as human beings, but there definitely has been a shift in a cultural worldview, especially in the West, to go from con- concrete ideas and concrete um, thinking to very abstract thinking to fit whatever you want to get out of this world. But that's expected. That's the world. That's man at his sinfulness will do whatever he can just to stay doing what he wants to do, what he, however he wants to please himself. But when we think about Christianity and we think about postmodernism, we think, well, can those two really exist? I mean, there are Christians who will claim I'm a postmodern Christian. What does that mean? How does that work? It's sad when you find certain quotes, and I've been studying this for a few months, looking at, at various authors who would claim this postmodern worldview, and you start to see what they're thinking is, and it's really sad. It doesn't, it doesn't fit with what the Bible's teaching. I found this quote from um, the wife of Rob Bell. Some of you might be familiar. He wrote a, a novel, that, uh, a novel hybrid called The Velvet Elvis. Some of you might be familiar with it. Some of you might have read it. But his wife, in, when she was being interviewed in Christianity Today, said, I grew up thinking that we figured out the Bible, that we knew what it means. Now I have no idea what most of it means, and yet I feel like life is big again. Like life used to be black and white, and now it's color. And I think that's a very telling quote. Now, I've never met her. I haven't read much of her. But that quote reveals a lot in that she doesn't think that we can know what the Bible's saying. And that in some way, and I don't know how, but she feels liberated in being able to go, well, I, I'm never going to be able to know it, so I'll just let it all go. And wow, I feel so free now. And it's interesting, another quote here, Dan Kimball, some of you might have heard of him. He's written a book called The Emerging Church. He's a pastor of a church up in Northern California, I believe it's called Vintage Faith. And he said that the church must deconstruct, reconstruct, and redefine biblical terms. That's where we're at. So over the next hour here, I'd like to just chat with you about the idea of what is postmodernism. And uh, we've got our uh, 
PowerPoint here with all the different ideas floating around. The gentleman in the top right-hand corner really is kind of the guru of this movement. Uh, some of you might have heard emerging church, emergent church. We're going to talk about all that. His name is Brian McLaren, by the way. We'll have a few quotes from him. But we need to, to see what are these guys saying. Does it jive with Christianity? Does it jive with what the Bible says? And so let me click through here. Just hit the right arrow, I guess. Or do I hit the center button? Uh-oh. Or maybe the bottom one. I know. Um, all right. PowerPoint, is it hooked up there? Well, when we get to the next frame here, we'll talk about it. But I want to talk about three points. We're going to look at postmodernism and its effect on the church. And then we'll look at the idea of emerging and emergent. What does it mean? Um, emergent is emerging, but not everything emerging is emergent. What? Well, you'll figure it out. It's postmodern. And then we'll also look at, finally, what does the Bible say the church should be doing? How, how do we address these things? Do I need to maybe hold it down? No, it seems to be on. Well, maybe you could just go to the next frame for me. I'll just say, next frame, please. All right, so let's define for a moment postmodernism. We, we kind of looked at a couple examples of it in the world and how people can basically bend the truth to fit however they feel. But I think as Dr. Hazen uh, commented on last week, there's definitely a core issue about truth. And the idea within postmodernism is that truth is relevant. There really is no ab or a concrete truth that uh, we can believe in. There's no absolute truth. And he said, as I think most of us would agree, that if you say there is no absolute, you're making an absolute in itself there, and so you contradict yourselves. Um, Postmodern says that truth is not found, but it is constructed socially. So, you, it, it, and we have to be careful here, because not all postmoderns are walking around going, I don't know anything, I'm stupid, I don't know. Some of them are very bright people. But what they do, they cleverly construct for themselves, well, within Riverside, our truth is this. But if I were to go to Indiana, well, the truth might be a little different because of the way they live. And definitely, when if I go to Europe, the way they look at truth, it's, it's going to be just a bit different because of the way they live and their culture and so forth. Um, really, it, it's bigger than that because they also like to say it's within you know, the Western world or the Eastern world or in the third world. And within those communities, they have to construct for themselves their own truth. Each society, culture, and subculture develops their truth uh, so that the members in their community will adhere to it. So that's why you can bring up an argument against them. Well, if that's true, then how can you say Hitler was wrong for killing six million Jews and four million other people he didn't like? Well, that's a, that's a lame argument, uh, you know, because, because in, in Europe they had laws, and those laws said that you can't kill people for just any old reason, and, and that's, that was their truth. But the problem is that logic doesn't go that far. Okay, why did they have laws that say they can't kill people? Well, because human beings have rights, and those intrinsic rights of a human, well, they can't kill each other. Well, why do human beings have rights? Why is there something intrinsic within a human being that says you can't kill another human being because you don't like them? Well, because we're alive and we, we live and, and, and that's a human's right. They, they can't, they, it starts to break down. 
because you're either an evolved animal and there is no such thing as rights and we can do whatever we want. The law of the jungle rules, even if we for a moment construct certain laws that restrict that. Or perhaps, even as some of our founding fathers, though not many of them were Christians, but you know they did have a, a worldview that God existed, said that all human beings are created equal with inalienable rights, um, because God made them. They were image bearers of God. And so if you strike down your other man, well, in a sense, you're striking down the creation of God. And that's wrong because God created life and we shouldn't take that. I mean, that stands up a lot better, doesn't it? That's, that is your Christian worldview. And in the West, we still live with a Christian worldview. I think Francis Schaeffer said uh, to the extent that um, the West borrows the Christian worldview, takes God out of it. It's kind of like a genetic engineering where you take the, the cell, you extract the nucleus, but you still say, well, this is real and I've created this. No, you didn't. You just manipulated it. And in the same way in society is the laws and, and uh, the way that we live culturally, it is still, to a certain extent, the remnants of a Christian worldview. But it has changed. There's definitely a shift that has happened. Part of this is the, um, that in the modern worldview, and Dr. Hazen touched on this for a moment, the modernist worldview that came out of the Enlightenment, that came out of the rationalistic thinking uh, that mankind had in the 17th and 18th century, was that mankind, yeah, we are image bearers, and in fact, we just found out that we're even better than God because we can do anything. We can figure out truth. We can know everything. That's where these utopian ideas of the 1800s came about and people moved out into Missouri to set up their own new societies and they moved to Utah to set up a new society. And this is going to be perfect. This is going to be great because we're human beings and we can do it. Well, that only lasted for so long because as man advanced and, and began to scientifically look at things, which was exactly what God had created mankind to do. I mean, what do you think Adam was doing in the Garden of Eden? He was scientifically analyzing animals and naming them and saying, look at this lion, Eve, isn't this thing amazing? And wow, look at this tiger. They're somewhat related, but the, oh, we'll call that tiger, we'll call that lion. Um, it, it was the early form of classifying creatures as scientific and that was exactly what God created mankind to do, to explore his creation, to glorify him in doing that. But by the 1900s, early 1900s, a war happened, a horrible, horrible war happened called World War I. We call it that now. At that time, it was called the Great War. And Europe was ravaged, torn apart. It was horrible. Uh, I had the privilege years ago of being in London and going to the Imperial War Museum and they had an exhibit you could actually walk through of trench warfare. And the way they set it was amazing. You walk in and you're in a trench and you can peek through a uh, viewfinder and you look out across no man's land to the German side and you see bombs going off. And I got just a sense, just a small touch of what that would have been like. Of course, there were no real shells. There was no smell of blood and death. There was, you know, no cursing and just, you know, death all around. But you get a sense of how horrible it was. And men started asking questions. Well, wait a second. I thought we were in the age of enlightenment. I thought we had figured it all out. I thought we were going to be able to end all wars and, and make a world that is better for humanity. What happened? 
So I'm getting a bit off of what I wanted to talk about, but the point is that there was a huge shift because of the horrible wars in the 1900s. And mankind began to ask themselves, man, can we really know anything? We thought we knew it, but we don't. And that's the birth of existentialism. And then that led into German nihilism and so forth. And all these ideas of what is it to be alive? What is it to be a human? Why are we here? And unfortunately, you know, to a certain extent, they were coming to the end of themselves. They were seeing themselves as flawed men, as hollow men, as some of them began to refer to themselves as, as men without substance. And instead of fleeing to a holy God who could save them and restore their souls and give them life, they went the other way. They went to nothing. They went to just really, well, life is life and I'm here now and I'm gone tomorrow. And unfortunately, that worldview has caught on. And by the 70s and, so, uh, and 80s, it started being referred to as we're no longer in a modern world. Most real people don't think we're going to be able to find answers. We're not going to be able to find truth. Maybe truth doesn't even exist. And then a lot of them started saying, even if it did exist, who cares? We're flawed, we'll never know it, so let's just try to do the best we can. And that is really kind of that postmodern shift. There's no absolute truth. Even if there was, we're never going to find out what it is. And thus, everything's relative. We recognize everyone's truth as equal. I can't say that my worldview is better than your worldview. I can't say my religion is better than your religion because they're all made up anyways just to make you feel better. So how can we do that? And so we began to redefine what tolerance is and what pluralism is. Pluralism existed in, in a, a Christian worldview. I mean, if you think about America and its founding on the idea of religious freedom, that was unique. I mean, Europe warred over, we're a reformed state. No, we're a Catholic state. No, we're a you know, Dutch reformed state. No, we're, you know, and back and forth, back and forth. Not fully getting the idea that some of those Reformation ideas were bringing that, you know, it was about um, the just shall live by faith alone and that, you know, wow, the, the church has controlled the Bible for so long and now we need to let that word free and allow people to read it for themselves and allow the Holy Spirit to move them and save them. People were getting that idea, but unfortunately on the state and political level, no, we must be a Catholic nation. No, we must be a Reformed nation. And they started warring and fighting and establishing religion. And so when the pilgrims and our other founding fathers came here, they said, let's just say you can be free to be what religion you want to be with the idea that you can't convolute, you can't, what am I trying to say here? You can't convert a soul. You can't go up and sit there and grab someone and say, you be a Christian, okay? I mean, unfortunately, I think some of them had seen some of the Muslim marauders of uh, the Iberian Peninsula in Spain come through and force people, you must be Muslim. Um, in Eastern Europe, and some of those, you must believe this way. And unfortunately, some Christians were behaving that way. You must believe this way. You can't do that. You might get somebody to extrinsically say, yes, okay, I accept what you had to believe. But intrinsically, they're going to go, I don't believe that, but I want to live, so I'm not going to, I'll just go along with the flow. So a Christian worldview allows for the idea of many different ideas because we know that man is sinful and man will pursue whatever he wants to pursue to be free. Uh, from God and to do whatever he wants to do. He thinks it's freedom, but it's not. And so unfortunately, um, pluralism has changed. It, instead of just the idea of, of 
of respecting each other, but not having to say, well, you're right and I'm wrong. Now it is every single religion, every single idea has to have equal platform and you can't say that you're different than that. And there's a problem there because some religions can morph. You can have a Buddhist and a Hindu and a, you know, some other Eastern religion living near each other. And you know, they really don't have statements of truth of saying, this is the way it is. They just, Buddhists really, I mean, I've known some of them, will just say, well, if you want to believe that, that's fine. And this is what I believe and that's where we're at. But unfortunately, and actually I should say fortunately for us, the Bible makes some very strong statements of truth that says, this is the word of God. Jesus came and lived among us. He died and rose again. Uh, even as Dr. Hazen was referring to in 1 Corinthians 15 last week, um, Paul is making a very strong statement there that Jesus did all this, and if he didn't, we're to be pitied among all other people. Because if it's not true, what the heck are we doing here? Why are we wasting our time? There are better country clubs than Cornerstone. There are better country clubs than Reformed Baptist Church of Riverside. But we know it to be true. And so you can't... We, anyways, that's, that's one of the biggest problems within the postmodern world. And what we see now is that as postmodernism deconstructs and tries to redefine for itself in this world how we live and, and what is true and what's not true and, and how we're going to exist with each other, unfortunately, we see this starting to influence the church. Because some people go, hmm, if we live in a world that won't accept an absolute truth, how am I going to absolutely say that they have to know Jesus? How am I going to absolutely say that unless they repent of their sins, they're going to hell? I won't jive with them. They're not going to listen to me. So what can I do? How, how can we reach these people? And instead of, as we're going to talk about in a little bit here, taking the time to sit down with people, I mean, that's what the Great Commission is, isn't it? To, to go and make disciples, to, to, to live with them, to walk with them, to have coffee with them and, and work through some of these and, and define for them. What does it mean to say a holy God has been offended? What does it mean to say that I'm a sinful creature no matter what I do, even if I walk an old lady across the street, if I don't have the grace of Christ in my life, I'll still go to hell? Why? That doesn't make any sense. I just did a good thing. See, we used to live we had a, a unique privilege to a certain extent in America to live in a world that had a Christian worldview. You could live in a community and you know, not be saved, grow up, go to high school, go to college, and have in your mind the basic truths of what Christianity was because your grandma was a Christian or your uncle was a Christian and your mom was a Christian and you went to church on a somewhat regular basis growing up and so you had the idea of what the basic idea I'm not saying you understood truth but you had a basic idea of it and then when you're 25 you were walking down the street and you heard someone preaching and all of a sudden something grabbed you and you're like oh man yeah I am a sinner what the heck am I doing? I've just been living for myself. This is horrible. Lord, save me. And you become a Christian because you had a, at least a concept of what that truth was. But we live in a world now that more and more and more people don't understand what sin is. They don't know that word. They, they, they know it in the sense of some television show of some prudish 
fake Christian on there going, oh, we are sinners. Oh, look at those prudes. They're so stupid. Uh, but what does that mean? Or, uh, they don't know what God means because maybe they grew up around a Hindu community or maybe they grew up, uh, you know, not even in an atheistic understanding and just like, God, huh, he's this guy who sits in the clouds with a big beard and just throws bolts at people when, they're, when he's mad at them. No, that would be four. Sorry. Uh, that's not God. Um, <laughs> but unfortunately... People don't have a Christian worldview. I can't remember who it was, but I was listening to a preacher not too long ago talking about that idea that within certain communities, especially, I think it was in, in the idea of um, back in England in the 17, 1800s, people grew up with a Christian worldview. They weren't necessarily Christians, but they knew who Jesus was. They knew who God was. I know who it was. It's a guy named Ichabod Spencer. He was a pastor in Brooklyn, New York in the early to mid-1800s. Most people have never heard of him. I just happened to come across this book. And he wrote down all of his conversations with people who uh, he was evangelizing, who he was sharing Christ with. Um, And it was interesting because a lot of them were people who went to his church because that was the thing to do. That was the worldview at that time. You went to church. But many of them were unconverted souls. And so as he worked through these conversations, you know, they would say, yeah, I know Jesus did this, and I know that, um, that all I have to do is embrace him, but I, I just can't. I just, I, I want to, but I can't. And, you know, he was patient to share with them. We don't live in that world now. There's still pockets. I mean, maybe Riverside is a pocket. The Lord's blessed us with many churches here that teach the, that teach the Bible. And so there might be a unique influence here. But if you move into more urban areas like Los Angeles or Philadelphia or downtown San Francisco, chances are when you're sitting at Starbucks and you start to talk with someone about Christ, they'll either think you're cussing or they'll think you're crazy. Christ? What do you mean? Yeah, I've heard of him, but who cares? And, and they have no concept of who he is. So we have to work with that. That's where we're at. So the effects of postmodernism on the church is, um, is because we live in a different world now. But it's not a world that can't be reached. I want to real quickly say, let's see here. That will, yeah, great, it's working. Oh, I was going to say, there's a couple books here that, um, well, we'll get to this in a moment, sorry. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15 you don't have to turn there, but you're welcome to look at it if you'd like. But it, we're just, I, was, I want to look at this one verse. What is the church? You know, my, my topic for today is to talk about postmodernism and the church. What did God establish when he sent Christ here to establish the church, the living church of God? Well, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, it says that the, the church of the living God is a pillar and a buttress or a ground of truth. Now, unfortunately, some of those within the Roman Catholic Church twist that to say that that means that the Pope gets to say what is true and what's not true and that he is, the, he is that pillar. But that's not the case here. If we look at what Paul is saying to Timothy, who was in Ephesus, nowhere near Rome, he was saying that the church that you're working with and the church that is in Jerusalem and the church that's being established uh, over here in, in you know, Corinth and so forth, the, the living church, all of us who represent Christ and then also all of us who come together corporately at our local church, the church is a pillar and a ground of truth. 
Churches are to broadcast and, and be grounded. We're to be this pillar, this, this tall, large, looming entity within our communities that proclaims truth. And then we're also to be grounded. A pillar can't stand on its own. It must be grounded in truth. And that's a, that's a, a great charge to us as Christians. Over and over, Paul reminds Timothy in this first uh, book that he must preach the gospel and stick to the scriptures. Paul warns that there will be a, a, a coming apostasy, that uh, you, will, you will see it. From that point on to now, we will see people leave the faith and, and twist the faith. But he says that you must have a passion and a concern for truth, and that is the word of God. As well as a concern, Paul was very concerned for Timothy, that as a leader he would not get caught up in these false teachings. And Paul kind of concludes with Timothy in chapter 6, verse 20. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babbles and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it some have swerved from the faith. You know, really, there's nothing new under the sun. Did, was Timothy facing something different that we face now? No. He, he was a pastor of a church there in Ephesus. And he, uh, you know, he had people who were truly saved. He had those who were interested in what was going on but weren't saved. He had the world pressing in among him going, who are you guys? I mean, think about it. Some of those uh, Ephesians were really upset that Paul and Timothy were there. They started rioting in the streets because they were ruining their business. Their little goddesses to Artemis or Diana, depending if you're a Greek or Roman. Um, you know, they, their sales were plummeting because people were coming to know Christ and we've got to get rid of these guys. I mean, they had the same pressures we were facing, but in many ways, it was a different name. Postmodernism, we call it today, is really nothing new. It's what Satan used with Adam and Eve. He took the Word of God and then he twisted it. He said, is this really what God said? It's an attack on God and it's an attack on His Word. But it's very subtle. It's very attractive. It's very intellectual. It's very interesting to look at. So let's look real quickly here at some of the influences that it has had on the church. Now, you can go to other studies. You can read other people. Um, and they'll probably have many influences. But I just wanted to look at four of these real briefly this morning. The first one here is that these postmodern thinkers believe that we live in such a different world now that we're never going to be able to reach this culture unless we change the gospel somehow. In fact, you can see that quote up there that one of the first ways that we see is that they, they want to change it to become more experiential. Uh, it needs to be an experiential gospel. We need to, to feel it. It needs to be touchy and, and feely. And, because if postmoderns, postmoderns don't believe in absolute truth, well then, why would they want to come to church? Because we teach absolute truth here. So if you present those truths too harshly, you're going to push people away. They're not going to be attracted. So what's their conclusion? Well, don't preach the truth openly. You know, let's, let's, uh, in order to reach the lost, we must give them what they want. We, and, and we know that they want to have a religious experience. They want to feel good. Man is dead in his sins. There's a certain sense that we've lost something. Um, and so if you come to some sort of environment where it's oh, just really emotional 
and maybe the windows are darkened and we'll put some stained glass back up in there. Maybe we'll put a crucifix up on the wall. And, you know, my wife and I were earlier this year uh, in France and we went to Notre Dame. It's this huge cathedral and you walk in, it's kind of breathtaking. Oh, I mean, it's huge. How did they build this, you know, 500 years ago? And, it, and they've got this... Not that day, but they do have it sometimes. This music, this oh, oh, these chants and candles burning in the corners and different catacombs you can go off into and graves. And, and it, is, it is an experience. But is it true religion? Dan Kimball writes here. He's the gentleman who wrote The Emerging Church. He's one of the leaders in this, in this movement. He says the basis of learning has shifted from logic and rational systematic thought to the realm of experience. People increasingly long for the mystical and the spiritual rather than the evidential and facts-based faith of the modern world. Kimball goes on to say that the old paradigm taught that if you had the right teaching, you'll experience God. That's, that's the old paradigm. The new paradigm says that if you experience God, you will have the right teaching. That's a dangerous statement. I, don't, I, don't, I, I want to re-stress what he's saying there. He's saying that the old thinking, that old Christian thought that we used to have was that in order to know God, you had to go to the Word of God to know Him. That's, that's old. Let's get rid of that. That's not true anymore. You need to experience God and then you can have the right teaching. There's a problem there. It's getting a cart before the horse. God has said that the way we know who He is is by His Word. That's how He's revealed Himself to us, friends. If we're going off of our feelings, if we're going off of experiences, then they're more, um, I hate to say it, more um, experiential places than Cornerstone or than Reformed Baptist Church. In fact, Disneyland's a better place. I, I think I've ridden the Jungle Cruise or Indiana Jones and had a, a moment. <laughs> I... You know, I've been to Yosemite and I've had a moment. I've been to the edge of the Grand Canyon and gone, oh, big, mind little, canyon big, can't compute, must turn away. Turn back again, big. You know, we, yeah, human beings like experiences. It's wonderful, but are we going to get truth out of that? Are You know, this statement here is almost a modern idea that somehow man's going to be able to get truth. It's going to be able to know God because we just experience Him. It's dangerous, friends. Because there are religions out there that have rituals that really could make you feel good. I mean, look at Martin Luther. When he went to Rome for the first time, he was so excited. He gets to climb up the Scala Santa on his knees, praying Hail Marys all the way up to the top, and he can earn somebody's salvation who died before him. Uh, I mean, Rome was full of these things. You could go to see the bone of Peter and get a blessing. You could go and see the tooth of Paul and get a blessing. You know, it's a, and, and it's an experience. Notre Dame was an experience. There's some caves in Tibet where the wind blows in a certain way that, man, you'll be changed for life. I don't know why, I mean, it's, but it's an experience. You can go to certain Hindu temples in India with incense and, and candles and, and the light striking in a certain way and uh, cobras just in a trance and it's an experience. You might feel you've obtained something, but you've only attained a moment. You've only attained something that you'll have to keep attaining time and time and time again. I mean, 
Ah, how refreshing it is that Jesus said, I will come and give you water that you will never thirst for. I will give you bread that you will never hunger for. Ah, that is the, that's the, those are some of those amazing essentials of Christianity. We don't have to search anymore. We don't have to strive for experiences anymore. Christ has come. And he is, he is as, as we say in this wonderful season, He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And He's revealed Himself in His Word that when we study it and know it, oh, all of you who are Christians have had these moments, haven't you? They, they are better than any Tibetan cave or ride at Disneyland where you're just reading the Bible and, Lord, teach me what you mean here. And, okay, what is that? And all of a sudden, I mean, you get tears in your eyes. That's better than anything in the world. Lord, I never knew how precious you were. I thought I knew you were precious last week when I was reading Romans, but now I'm reading in 1 Corinthians. You're precious. You're amazing. So we have to be careful. It isn't just experiences. It's a gospel. The postmoderns will say the gospel must be all about feelings and experience. How do you know those feelings are right? How do you know if what you're experiencing is true? There have been people, I mean, you can go talk to some occultists who have experienced the supernatural. And because they've experienced it, they somehow, even though they might have a postmodern world, say, well, that's my evidence that it's true. But there's some frightening things they're dealing with there. So the next thought here is that, well, if it's an experiential gospel, it also needs to be a mystical faith. And we've kind of touched on some of that. But all truth claims and doctrine are evaluated by those experiences I know this to be true because I feel it. I feel like God told me this was true. See, if you're starting to live that way, you're becoming a mystic. I mean, we all, unfortunately, fall that way sometimes. Because it's, it's difficult sometimes. It's the Lord, does the Lord want me to go here? Does he want me to do that? Lord, how do I, I, we have to be careful, though. Our feelings are very subjective. If you challenge their experience, you know, some of these people in this movement, if you challenge them and saying, well, you know, According to Scripture, though, that's not right. They'll get all huffy and you're being judgmental. You're being critical of my faith. I feel this. This is making me feel special. Yeah, but the Bible says... Really, our ground has been swept out from under us, hasn't it? If, if, if the church is to be a pillar and a ground of truth, and then all of a sudden they say, well, the Bible is subjective and... You know, I can't. I have to go off of my feelings, not what the Bible's telling me. You know, so we've just been karate kicked and sideswiped, and what? Doesn't mean that that's true, but it's difficult to talk to these people. We've got a quote here. Oz Guinness, he's been investigating this movement. He says, They believe faith is true because it works and because they feel it is true in their experience, because they sincerely believe it is true for them. The Christian faith is not true because it works. It works because it's true. Yeah, I agree. Amen. See, once again, we get the cart before the horse. I love that. The Christian faith is not true because it works. It works because it's true. We see some of this mysticism uh, revealed in their worship experiences. If experience is the chief goal of our personal spiritual life, then it should be so for our public worship. The music should arouse emotion and provide an experience rather than convey truth. Worship is not about adoring God, but about nourishing ourselves with religious feelings. 
It's kind of like those uh, Gregorian chants. I don't know what they're saying, but they're, you know, it's kind of moving. And you think back to um, before the Reformation, when the, when the Roman church controlled, really, the gospel and controlled the truth. Um, I mean, messages were in Latin. And if you're in Germany or if you're in England, you don't speak Latin. But you go because you have to and you go because it's an experience and it feels a lot bigger than you are in your little peasant thatch roof house. And somehow you're going to get some experience there. Peter Rollins, he is one of these emergent leaders in Northern Ireland. He's the pastor of a church called Icon, ironically. We at Icon are developing a theology which derives from the mystics, a theology without theology, to complement our religion without religion. See, some of these guys make statements that are a lot more stronger than others. If you, read, if you go to Dan Kimball's website, I mean, it, it just looks like a, you know, a Gen X church that's trying to be hip for the kids. Um, but uh, some of these guys, like Brian McLaren and Peter Rollins, they'll make these radical statements. I mean, they are moving towards a Christianity without Christ. Well, they'll, they won't say that. They'll say, well, we want to live in the way of Christ. We want to live in the way of Jesus. But really what it boils down to, in a moment we'll get to this point, is a social gospel. Um, the problem here is that if we're working with a experience, if we're working with mysticism, and we don't have truth, eventually we're going to get to what we call an inclusive message. If you can't make a statement that says that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, well, then how can you say a Buddhist doesn't have it right? How can you say a Muslim isn't right in what they believe? Now, here's our uh, friend Brian McLaren. This quote is interesting to me. He says, although I don't hope all Buddhists will become Christians, and he puts the term in there, cultural Christians, I do hope all who feel so-called will become Buddhist followers of Jesus. I believe they should be given the opportunity and invitation. I don't hope all Jews or Hindus will become members of the Christian religion, but I do hope all who feel so-called will become Jewish or Hindu followers of Jesus. Kind of scratch your head there, what? <laughs> I mean, if he's talking about culture, um, obviously that's something that Christianity has learned a lot even in this last century. We don't want to go into Africa and make them become English Christians. We want them to be African Christians. Their, their, their culture is, is their culture and we want them to experience the Word of God and, and who Christ really is, but you know, they can worship them in, you know, the, uh, with their style of music and with their dress. The same as we go to China. We don't want to make them American Chinese Christians. We want them to be Christians and they happen to be Chinese and so their potlucks will be a lot different than our potlucks. <laughs> and probably better. <laughs> But we have to be careful here. What are we saying? Are we saying the Christian religion shouldn't tell a Buddhist that once you've experienced Christ, once you've tasted of that living water, the bread that you'll never hunger for, that you can still dabble within your Taoism, that you can still have certain experiences that are ritualistic and will make you feel a little better? No, that's empty. That's gone. Those are those old forms that have passed away. They, those old religious ideas, they, they don't hold anything anymore. You've now found Christ. So we have to be careful. We see an inclusive idea here. 
People can be saved by being good followers of their own religion if they do it sincerely. There was a, this other quote here from McLaren. It says, It bothers me to use exclusive and Jesus in the same sentence. Everything about Jesus' life and message seemed to be about inclusion, not exclusion. Now, to a certain extent, I would agree with him there. But he adds this to it. Maybe God's plan is an opt-out plan, not an opt-in one. If you want to stay out of the party, you can. But it's hard for me to imagine somebody being more stubbornly ornery than God is gracious. The clear implication here is that we are all in unless we opt out. So we move to the fourth uh, idea I wanted to look at here that uh, postmodernism has influenced uh, some of Christian thinkers. Is a, It does become a social gospel. In many ways, as you start reading some of these books, um, you start to see, wow, how does this differ from liberalism in the late 1800s that Spurgeon was fighting against in, in London and, you know, and the ideas that were sweeping across America and that we need to reach out to the poor and that it's really not so much about who you believe Jesus is, but we need to follow what Jesus says and, and feed the hungry and, and, and heal those who are sick and so forth. Now, as Christians, and sometimes unfortunately, I think the church has separated ourselves from reaching out to people. So our pastor often says, you know, we, we need to reach out in the name of Christ with a cup of cool water. You know, if somebody's hot in the desert and thirsty, we don't want to just go up to him, you need to know Jesus Christ or else you're going to go to hell. No, Jesus didn't even do that. He went and sat down at the well. Just so happened that the lady he wanted to talk to was coming up there. He must have had some idea she was going to be there. She dips her, her uh, bucket into the well and say, hey, can I have a drink of water? Well, sure. And sipping on the water and starts chatting with her. I mean, there, there are effective ways of engaging people. Um, but unfortunately, this social gospel is starting to creep in where this almost becomes the purpose. It's not about glorifying God necessarily. Rob Bell, the author of Velvet Elvis and many other books, says that salvation... Did it come up? No, it didn't. Salvation is the, in, is the entire universe being brought back into harmony with its maker. This has huge impl- implications for how people pre- present the message of Jesus. Yes, Jesus can come into our hearts, but we can join a movement that is as wide and as big as the universe itself. Rocks and trees, birds and swamps and ecosystems, God's desire is to restore all of it. Now, the unfortunate thing here is that, you know what, I don't like pollution. I don't like it when I see a hungry person in a country, you know, the starving kids in the Sudan. I don't like it when I see, you know, wars happening all around. I don't like seeing sin ravaging the world. And I don't think any of us as Christians would say that. But more and more what we're seeing in this movement is that the whole point of God's salvation is not necessarily for the soul so that a human can be restored back to the position of a, of, of a true God bear, an image bear of God, worshiping God and bringing glory to God, but that the whole idea of redemption is to see the world brought back into order, to see pollution done away with, to see people uh, fed, and more and more it becomes that's what you should be doing. 
Don't worry so much about the, the non-essentials of who Jesus really was or what, um, you know, the, uh, what a Christianity is all about or who God really is. You're never really going to know that, but let's do what's practical. I mean, it is, a, it is a form of pragmatism. Let's do what we practically can do right now. And I know there's a guy hungry across the street in those apartments. So I'm going to go over there and take him some food. And I'm going to go over here and talk to uh, this person, you know, and, and bring him a pizza because he's hungry. And it's more and more and more it becomes all about doing something um, instead of uh, actually knowing Christ for who he is. It, it becomes a distraction. So those are four of the ways that we've seen this influence. And I've just touched on them briefly, guys. I'm sorry that we can't really delve into this more and more, but hopefully over the next couple of weeks, uh, the other speakers uh, can, can talk more about this. But I want to move into um, an area here that, to kind of help you. If you go to Bereans now, I think you can actually find a section called Emerging. Bereans is very good about always uh, being on the cutting edge of movements, um, <laughs> whether they're good or bad. But uh, they do have an emerging section there, and you might go, well, what do you mean by emerging? Haven't we always been here? Or, you know, didn't, didn't Christ emerge, and now we're continuing? Maybe we're continuing Christians, not emerging. I, the idea, though, does come with this worldview shift from a modernistic, hey, we can grasp who God is, we can grasp truth, we're, we're rational creatures, to this postmodern view of um, we're in a new world now, and we're, people think differently. So the church needs to change. The church needs to emerge and become a postmodern church and not stuck in this rational, modern idea. Now, I said earlier that um, emergent is emerging, but not everything emerging is emergent. And what do I mean by that? Well, emergent, that word there on your left, is really more or less a brand name. That is a, you can, there's a website called Emergent Village, I believe. And on there, you can find McLaren and, uh, and others like him who are continuing what they call a conversation, a discussion. What should Christianity look like now? How, how, should, it, how should it exist? Uh, and a lot of them are coming up with these very, we, for lack of better words, liberal ideas, very postmodern ideas of what the gospel is. Now, emerging, though, is more of a generic term. It's a term that um, talks about a movement of people who realize, yeah, we do live in a different world, and so how are we going to engage them? Some of them end up with more liberal ideas, and some of them end up with somewhat conservative ideas. One of those is a gentleman by the name of Mark Driscoll. Some of you might have heard of him. Uh, he's a pastor up in Seattle. I believe it's called Mars Hills Church. And if you read his confession of faith, the church's confession of faith, um, it'd be very similar to your confession of faith. Um, they, they are doctrinally sound, if you will. Um, but there might be some things you might not agree with in the way that they reach out to people. But he says here, this quote, I'll just touch on a, a couple points of it. He says that at one point, especially in the, in the 90s, he was a part of this whole emerging and emergent movement um, idea. But he had to begin to distance himself um, from one of many streams in the emerging church because of theological differences. See, there were people in the early 90s, I, rem- I remember them, I was just out of high school myself, who started seeing things were different. That talking with those in college, there was this mass relativism, or there was this wanting for experience over truth. And you saw that, but, you, okay, so, but how am I going to reach these people? How are we going to talk to these people? And so a lot of people started asking questions. The world has changed. What are we going to do about it? How are we going to reach out to them? 
And some began discussing it. And then quickly you see these things split. And so a lot of times if you hear them referred to as emergent, it's going to be more of a liberal theology. And those who claim to be emerging Christians like Dan Kimball, a lot of that you might not agree with. Um, And then there are those within Mark Driscoll's circles who... Uh, he was just at a John Piper conference. Um, I believe he's, you know, he's preached alongside Al, Morrill, Al Mohler and R.C. Sproul, some guys that we would consider as sound teachers. And they realize that, yeah, he, he doctrinally is there, but he also is in the urban city of Seattle. Among, and Seattle's one of the most unchristian, you know, not, not necessarily in practice, but they're just, Washington itself, I think, is like 2% Christian. It's a very unchurched area. And so he's like, how are we going to reach these people? So he's done some radical ways of reaching out to them. Some of them we'd agree with, some of them we wouldn't. Does that make sense (laughs) to a certain degree? So the problem is, and I bring this up, it is a problem. You will heal her. We are an emerging church, and you have to dig deeper because it doesn't really necessarily mean anything. It's very postmodern. Um, <laughs> you might go, okay, you're emerging, and you grab it. So does that mean you're liberal, and they squish up over here? No, I believe that Jesus is real, and I believe in truth. Okay, so why do you say you're emerging? Because I want to reach people. Okay, but why don't you just say you're a Christian? Well, because that's not cool. I, and, and honestly, a lot of it does fall down on that level because a lot of them are very youth-based. They see, and we see it too, that the new generations coming up, those in junior high, those in high school, those in college now, uh, they just have no concept of God. And, and they're just all about experience. They're all about MySpace and PlayStation and having fun and just finding pleasure. They're the ultimate hedonist. We've, we've raised a very great group of self-esteemed hedonists in this country <laughs> because that's all they see. You know what? If there's no purpose, then I want to have as much fun as I can. So how do we reach those people? You know, uh, and so a lot of these emerging churches will say, "Well, we want it to be cool. We want it to be hip. We want to have these touchy-feely things." Um, and they use buzzwords, and sometimes they use experiences. They're still preaching the truth, but it becomes—I like to call it seeker-sensitive 2.0—because um, <laughs> they feel they're going to be able to reach people in that way. All right, I'm seeing that I've got maybe five minutes here, so I knew I had too much information. If you look at, let's think here, we've got, we'll skip this one. Dan Kimball says this, the thing that seeker-sensitive churches removed from the churches are the very things postmodern non-believers want to experience. The postmodern wants to reconnect with the past They want traditions and religious symbols rather than slick excellence, polished performances, and state-of-the-art structures for modernity. And so he's saying the same thing we've seen here, that they want these experiences, but they don't want God in it. They don't want real truth in it. So what does the Christian church do? Let me move here towards the end. Well, if we look at uh, the days of Timothy and Paul, they lived in a pluralistic society. They lived among the Greeks who worshipped knowledge. They lived among the Romans who worshipped Julius Caesar. And they lived amongst the Ephesians who had a great temple. In fact, it's, it's amazing that Timothy had a church where one of the seven wonders of the ancient world existed. And so the, uh, this temple, the temple to Diana or Artemis, um, it was this huge temple. 
And it was a comp- it, it, everyone worshipped Diana. So what do you do as a Christian? Do you show up there and say, okay, Diana's cool, and she's a great experience, and you can go into that temple and experience all you want, but just say that, you know, just, just believe in Jesus too so you can be saved. No. Paul went to them, as it says in Acts 19, 9 and 10, and for two years before they rioted, was preaching the word of God to him. It says there in boldly, spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. And then towards the end there, we can see that after two years, all of the residents of Asia, now this might be a certain amount of hyperbole, maybe not everybody heard this, but all of the residents of that area heard the word of God. Did Paul twist and conform and try to make it a squishy, touchy-feely, experiential, mystical religion? No. He knew Jesus, and he knew Jesus was true. And he knew if he was true, then he could change lives. And I'm not going to back down from this. I'm going to preach it boldly. And he, well, I'm sure the Lord gave him wisdom. And in some t- instances, when he met a Jew who knew a lot of the Old Testament, was able to reason with him through the Old Testament to show him that Christ was the Messiah. But I'm sure when he met an Ephesian who loved Diana and loved going to the temple prostitutes and, and buying little idols and putting them all over their chariots, I'm sure that when he sat down with them, that he said, okay, now what's the deal here with Diana? And let me tell you about who God really is. And, and, and let's work through it. And I'm sure some of them, it didn't happen overnight. It took months, two years here, it says, to share with them. But he didn't change the truth. He didn't back away from who God is just because they didn't have a concept of what it was. He was patient. He knew the power of the Word of God. And he knew that it would take the Holy Spirit to convince their hearts. So today as Christians within the church, as we see this influences on postmodernism, I'm more and more convinced that though I want to love them and I want to talk with them and share with them, I, I really want to challenge them. You're not doing the world a favor. You're not helping them. In fact, you're making things worse. Now you'll have a conversation with them I know some people who even had conversations with Brian McLaren, and he's, he's slippery. He'll say things that sound Christian. He'll say things that sound good, and he'll even turn it around as a question. In fact, the lady I spoke with said that she asked him a question, and he answered with a question. And unfortunately, that's the way the devil loves answering. I'm not saying Brian McLaren's a devil. Um, and I'm not saying that some of these people might not have a sincerity within them, but they do need to be careful. And we need to be careful that we are rooted upon the sound rock of Christ, on his word, that we as members of a Bible-believing Christian churches that are pillars and grounds of truth to our community, that we're pillars wherever we're at, at work, amongst our friends and neighbors, even reaching out to people we don't know at Starbucks across the street. Will we be that pillar of truth? Will we broadcast it? Will we live it? as if it has changed our lives, as if we are rooted on it, as if we will not be swayed from it, no matter what intellectual argument, no matter what postmodern idea, no matter what experiential uh, thought can come along the way, will we stand on the word of God and proclaim it, though none go with us, or will we begin to change it? Um, and that's a danger we need to look into. My time is gone. I appreciate you so much for, for listening. Um, 
If you have questions, you know, um, I know you've got to switch over, but I'll be around here. We can t- chat about it. There are a couple websites you can go to. I think Mike had said last week that um, there are some of the books from John Piper. Uh, it's an excellent book. I have it. And you can even go to John Piper's website, desiringgod.org, and listen to them because they had a conference last year. You can download them for free. Um, you can go to monergism.com or .org, whichever it is, and they have tons of articles written from all different types of people about, um, about these thoughts and ideas and about how we don't need to be... Uh, the world has... There, there's a different thinking out there. So we need to be careful not to just think that, well, we've, this, uh, the four spiritual laws have been effective since 1950, so they're going to be effective on the college campus today. No, they're not. People don't believe in truth. So if you walk up and give them a little booklet that says, here's the four spiritual laws... You need to sit down with them and go through it and just don't think that they're going to pick it up and, and understand it. And I if you use that, I, I'm not bagging on it, but I'm just saying we can't always think that one mode of evangelism that worked at one point is going to work now in the sense that people we're dealing with are different. Greeks, Romans, Ephesians, all had different worldviews. But many of them came to know Christ and it was because Paul and Timothy and other Christians we never even heard of took the time to share about the blessed salvation that is found in our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you believe it? Is it true to you? Let's live it. Let's be lights for the name of Christ and to his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. Lord, we're challenged by your word. We're challenged by the fact that Paul was so bold and, and so desirous to see lives changed. He saw the, the, the drugged out lives of temple prostitutes stumbling down the street and his heart ached for them that they need to know Christ. He saw the intellectual uh, scholars in, and on Mars Hill in Athens and, and, and thinking that they had found everything in life and yet he saw them lost in their ways and shared Christ with them. And Lord, he even had an opportunity to go before the ruler of that world, the, uh, Caesar himself, and share and live a life holy before you, Lord God. Lord, we're just humble residents of Riverside and the surrounding areas. We might not have an opportunity to stand before world kings or before religious leaders, but Lord, we are around a lot of lost people, a lot of people who are, are, are getting caught up in just experiencing life and finding pleasure in it and thinking that that's it. Oh, Lord, how wrong they are. And Lord, how right you are. Please, we pray, give us the strength to stand for your truth. Give us the desire to hide it in our hearts. And Lord, we pray that you would empower us with your spirit to live the life that will glorify you. And Lord, may even be used to change those around us who don't know you. We lift this to you in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you so much, Troy, for coming out to share, and uh, great message, man.